This week we continue with our series, The Other Side of Our Savior, as we journey through the book of Mark to Easter. Affirming and confessing that Jesus is fully God and fully man, we are going to continue to look behind the curtain at the human side of Jesus, the side we don't tend to spend as much time embracing when we study the Gospels, when we study our Savior. As we follow his incarnational journey, we may continue, or may we continue, to see how he carried himself. What can we, as his people, learn from him? How can we mimic him? How can his perfect rendition of the Christian walk influence our flawed and stumbling one? Last week, we saw Jesus tell Matthew, follow me. We saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, and we asked the question, who was more surprised at how Jesus treated Matthew? Was it Matthew, the teachers of the law, the disciples? And we struggled through how Jesus calls those that have hurt us into his family, and we rejoiced in how even though we have hurt others, Christ has called us. The grace of God is a beautiful thing. This week, we are in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Jesus has just been out with the Pharisees, or having it out with the Pharisees again. The teachers of the law are continually hounding his ministry, looking for ways to trap him so they can move against him. Our text this morning is no different, but as we read the text, we're going to see Jesus respond to the Pharisees in a way that we may not expect him to. Keep our eyes open for it as we make our way through Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there now. If you prefer a Bible in your hands, there should be one in the back of the, on the back of the pew in front of you. But if you prefer, the words will be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord this morning. Mark chapter 3, 1 to 6. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Anyone familiar with what a sacred cow is? The turn of phrase has roots in a few different religions, but when it is used today, particularly here in the States, it is commonly known as a figure of speech for something considered immune from question or criticism, especially unreasonably so. A sacred cow is my favorite pair of sweatpants. I love those sweatpants. When I'm home, I like to be in those sweatpants. They are my comfort zone. But not too long ago, Karen got to have the fun conversation with me about how I probably shouldn't be wearing those sweatpants anymore. At least not where anybody can see me. It wasn't a fun conversation. Those puppies are great. 
They're soft where I want them to be soft. They don't judge me for how big I've gotten. They're just the right length so that they don't brush the floor when I walk around. If I have to go out and get the mail, they don't get wet from the dew or the rain. They're perfect. Except they have holes in all the wrong places. They may still be somewhat serviceable in the area of keeping me warm. They absolutely keep me comfortable. But pants are also intended to guard modesty. And in that particular area, these puppies fail miserably. I'm not allowed to wear them in public anymore. And if anyone comes over, I'm not allowed to get out of my chair. Them's the rules. <laughs> I wasn't happy to come to the realization that my sweats just aren't functional anymore. Those are my sweats. They may not fully be serving their purpose, but those are my sweats. I love them. I feel good in them. I feel comfortable in them. I don't, I don't want to lose them. They'd become a sacred cow. They'd been around so long, and I loved them so much, but it was pretty clear that they weren't really working, weren't really serving their purpose anymore. But because I loved them, because they meant so much to me, it required a hard, blunt conversation to get me to begin to change. Maybe a pair of sweats is a silly example of a sacred cow. But because it's hard to come up with illustrations that don't hit too close to home, that's what I went with. The reality is that we all have sacred cows. We all have things that we hold on to that may not be serving their purpose anymore. That may even be making life harder. But they're what we know. They're what we are comfortable with. And it's hard when they are challenged. It's it's really hard. And the reality is that sacred cows do not have to start out as bad things. Often, often they begin as really good things. They begin as beneficial things. The fundraiser at the school that used to be really popular, and now it's not anymore. But we need to keep doing it because there was one day when it was really popular. But now it's just a drain on the energies of the parents trying to keep it going. Like I said, maybe a bit too close to home. The special church service that used to be really well attended, it, it used to be a great time of gathering together and fellowship and worship, but times have changed and people aren't coming anymore. Yet still, a certain demographic in the church demands that this particular service continue because it's what they've always done. But it's just adding to the pastor's burnout and barely anyone is showing up. The outreach or fundraising event that the community used to show up for, but now the community has changed. But we need to continue to do this outreach event because it's what we've always done, and so we spend money on something that nobody shows up to because it's what makes us feel comfortable. It's what makes us feel like we're doing something. Sacred cows often don't start out as bad, especially not in the church. But when we put an importance on them that the Bible does not, we run into danger. The likelihood of our sacred cows becoming idols. And things that used to call us to join in God's mission are now standing, standing in the way of God's mission. That is what we see in our text this morning. Jesus has been teaching and the leaders of the day are getting pretty sick of his rhetoric. They're getting pretty frustrated with his message. They are trying to find ways to, to trap him. We read in verse 2 about how they are watching him, looking to see if Jesus will heal on the Sabbath. You see, it was clear 
in the Torah that work was not supposed to be done on the Sabbath. It was to be a day of rest. And, and that's a good thing, obviously. But what happened is that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day, turned that direction from the Lord into something it was never intended to be. The directive from God that you should have a day of rest, a Sabbath day, became twisted so that it was all law. Between the time of Ezra and the time of the early church, 39 prohibitions, things people weren't supposed to do on the Sabbath, were introduced. These included, but were definitely not limited to, writing two letters next to each other. You could write one letter. I'm not talking like letters. I'm talking A or I, right? You could write one letter on the Sabbath. If you wrote two letters, you were apparently no longer resting. And by their nature, these rules elevated the Pharisees. The items that would cause some people to break the Sabbath were not areas in which the Pharisees struggled all that much. And so keeping these new rules, these rules we do not see in Scripture, are not listed in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, which contain the laws God gave us. They were not easy, or they were easy for them, for the Pharisees, and hard for the common man. This is taking what was good instruction from God that we should take a day of rest and turning it into something else, something it was not intended to be. God's gift of grace had been turned into a sacred cow and it wasn't helping anyone. You didn't experience rest on the Sabbath. You lived in fear of breaking it or having something happen that would cause you to need to break it. Like if a person's sheep fell in a hole, as long as that sheep wouldn't die during the Sabbath, the owner was not permitted to remove it. And this extended to healing. If, if someone was in a life or death situation, they were permitted to be tended to on the Sabbath. But if it wasn't life or death, then no. If one of my sons scraped his knee on the Sabbath, I was not allowed to put a Band-Aid on it. That would be considered work. If he scraped it on Saturday and I put the Band-Aid on, that's fine. But if it fell off on the Sabbath, then I would not be permitted to reapply the Band-Aid. The rules were pretty intense. And so Jesus approaches the man with the shriveled hand and the Pharisees are watching. Will he break the Sabbath? Will he heal this man? The injury he has is not life-threatening. To heal him would be a sin in their eyes. Now let's be clear. This would be a sin in the eyes of the Pharisees, not the eyes of God. And we see that in the question Jesus asks those teachers of the law, these sharks circling in the water, these men who have twisted what was good and made it into an idol. Jesus turns and asks them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? The Pharisees know a trap when they see one. And so instead of answering, they remain silent. The next line of our text is incredibly Convicting, at least it was to me as I prepared the message this past week. Verse 5 reads, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Often when we think of Jesus being angry, we think of him flipping tables in the temple courts, right? where people were being extorted as they tried to keep their relationship with God intact. There we see Jesus flip tables and drive out the extortionists with a whip. But that is not the only time that we see Jesus angry, for we see it in our text this morning, don't we? 
Here we see the other side of our Savior, a side we're not used to seeing. He's typically portrayed as a calm, gentle force for good. But here we see Jesus frustrated and angry with those that are focusing on the wrong thing. The Pharisees are wanting to make sure that the way Jesus does ministry fits into their box of expectations. That it fits into how they think things should happen. Their concern is not that a man was healed, but that Jesus functions under their understanding of their sacred cow. But Jesus doesn't feel the need to meet those expectations. And he is mad when they refuse to acknowledge the truth because they are so caught up and stubborn in their own beliefs. He looked around at them in anger, we read, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. No, it is not just extortion that gets Jesus' blood pumping in the Bible. It is also the stubborn hearts of his people. And so that turns the question to us, doesn't it, Calvary? What are sacred cows in our church? What are the things, the traditions, the visions, the dreams, the practices that we hold on to that Christ does not? What are the things that started out as good but over time have taken on an importance that the Bible doesn't give them? And that ultimately stand in the way of ministry. Let us pray that God open our eyes. For I'm not convinced that we even have the ability to see some of our own sacred cows. But because we are sinners, each of us, I'm convinced that they exist in our church. For they exist in our hearts. Which leads us to the next question. What are the sacred cows in our lives? In what ways does the stubbornness of our heart get Jesus' blood pumping? In what ways do our stubborn hearts hurt our relationship with God? In what ways do our stubborn hearts hurt those that we love? In what ways are our sacred cows hurting our relationship with our God, our family, our friends, our neighbor? And following that train of thought is our stubbornness getting in the way of God's mission. That's what was happening in our text. The sacred cows of the Pharisees put pressure on Jesus to not do what he was sent to do. You better not heal on the Sabbath. You better restrict your mission to fit our expectations. You better do the things that we want the way we want. You better work the way we desire. And the way that the Pharisees' desires would have kept a man from being healed, would have kept a man from experiencing the touch of Christ. And so Jesus did what he came to do. He called out the Pharisees and he healed the man. And the Pharisees were so offended, so mad, so angry that the idol they had made of the Sabbath had been sullied so blatantly that they began plotting Jesus' death. Church, in what ways have our sacred cows gotten in the way of God's mission? We can have a hard time seeing that, I think. It's much easier for us to see the sacred cows of others than it is to see them of our own. So we're going to take a minute here. We're going to take a minute to ask the Lord, to ask the Holy Spirit, to reveal to us what our sacred cows are. What the things are that we have made big, that we have put an importance on that Christ has not. We're going to take a minute and pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us what those things are in our church, what they are in our lives. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? God, we know that we are sinners. We confess that we are not perfect, that we are selfish, and that we are stubborn.
God, we pray that you would reveal to us the areas that we may not see, the areas that we have been standing in the way of your mission. Help us to see how we have put our comfort, our desires, our idols in front of you and your desires for us and the mission that you have called us to. God, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see. Convict us that we may repent. We give this to you, God. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Amen. I don't know what the sacred cows are in your life. I don't know the areas that you have taken what is good from God and turned it into something that is harmful to your faith, to the church, and to God's mission. But as I become more and more aware of the ways that I have done this, I am so thankful for the love, grace, and mercy of our God. The God who sent his son, Jesus. Jesus, the Savior who came and lived among us, who tore down the sacred cows, who healed the sick, who spent time with the outcasts, who enabled the ungifted, who reached out to the abandoned, who gave sight to the blind, who loved the unlovable, who moved against the traditions of the day, who lived within God's direction, who responded perfectly to God's call. Jesus, who was betrayed, who was wrongfully condemned, and who took a cross up a hill. With that cross, he carried not just the burden of the lumber, but the weight of the sins of the world. And as the nails went through his hands and feet, and as he was lifted up, the Bible tells us that Christ became sin for us there on the cross. That though we have stubborn hearts, though we have gotten his blood pumping, he has loved us still. Loved us so much that he took all of our sin upon him. All of the sin that we have ever done and all of the sin that we will ever do. Christ took all of it. And there on the cross, he suffered for it. And there on the cross, he died. He died for our sin. He paid the price for our failings, for our idols, for our sacred cows. And he declared that it is finished. There's no more to be done. He has done it. The price for all sin has been paid. But Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, did not stay dead. For three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, we receive all the benefits that Christ's death has purchased for us. The filthy rags of our sins are taken from us, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are brought into the family of God. Our sins are forgiven, and we live in forgiveness. All of this through faith, not through acts, not through works. The action was done by Christ on the cross, and so in all of this, all of this is ours only through faith. What a promise. What a hope. What a blessing. May we repent of the stubbornness that lives in our hearts. May we remove our expectations for how God will do his mission. May we live in the excitement of how he has promised to move. How we have seen him move through the generations when our expectations are gone. And God does as he wills. There's a movie in theaters right now called The Jesus Revolution. It's about when hippies invaded the church. It's about a church being incredibly uncomfortable in the pews next to those that God has called. It's about sacred cows being torn down. It's about God working outside the box. It's about a church getting outside of its comfort zone and jumping into the mission that God had called them to, that God was bringing through their doors. And people were saved by the thousands. Will we let the Holy Spirit tear down our sacred cows? 
Or will we be like the Pharisees and continue to fight for the idols we have created and stymie the work of Christ in our community? Are we willing to be uncomfortable? I still own that ratty pair of sweatpants. I haven't been able to give them up yet. But I've purchased a few more pairs. They don't fit exactly the same. They don't give me the same comfort. They're a little warmer, not quite as drafty. But they still aren't as comfortable, not yet. But I think, I hope, that someday they will be. I just keep putting the new ones on and leaving the old ones in the drawer. They do come out sometimes, but not when they shouldn't. Church, I don't know how God is working in your heart, but I know that he is working in your heart. I don't know how you've been stubborn, but I know that you have been stubborn. And I know that God is shaping you just as he is shaping me and working on the stubbornness in my own heart. I don't know what we will look like or what this church will look like, but man, I am excited to find out. Because the God who healed the crippled man on that Sabbath day so long ago is at work in our world and in our church and in our hearts today. And he has called us to join him in his mission to bring about his kingdom. Will we join him, Calvary? Will we answer the call? Will we repent of our stubbornness? Will we repent of our pride? Will we repent of our expectations? Will we remove the boxes we've put God in? Will we join him in his mission here in Bergenfield? The Lord of hosts has called us. The harvest fields are ripe. The work will probably be uncomfortable. But our God is good and overflowing in grace and mercy. What a fantastic, powerful, just, and amazing God we serve.